Welcome back to your now weekly talk evidence, the show where we bring you a roundup of what's going on in the world of COVID and our understanding of it. Today, we're going to be looking at uh, diagnostic tests again and the fact that there are so many of them out there, the way in which we're debating the evidence on COVID and uh, how we do some decision making. As always, joining us are Helen MacDonald, resting GP and uh, UK research editor for the BMJ. Hi, Helen. Hi, Duncan. And Carl Hennigan, uh, professor of evidence-based medicine at Oxford, uh, editor of BMJ's EBM journal, and also a GP. Hi, Carl. Hi, Duncan. Well, last week we got you to give us a very quick update on data from England and Wales uh, about the mortality rate uh, at the moment. And this week there has been yet another update on that. Could you give us a very quick summary of, of what's been going on? Yes, what we've seen is hospital deaths trending down, but actually in the home and in the care set- setting, care home setting, there are actually more deaths now than there are in hospitals. And importantly, in the home setting, 90% of the deaths were non-COVID. And this was pretty similar in care homes, a bit less, but about 70% of the excess deaths in potentially in care homes were actually not COVID. So there are two reasons this could occur. One is it's a reporting issue. We just, people are dying, they weren't seen, and they died very suddenly and you didn't put COVID. Uh, Or second is, actually there's something else going on there's an issue about people are not seeking care or actually other conditions are increasing and increasing dramatically i think it's a little bit of both that's really interesting you mentioned that carl because one of the first things i wanted to come to in the podcast this week was around how can we better support people with non-covid related problems to come forward when they need to And I think we've seen some increasing national awareness and campaigns building around this this week. And it relates to the issue, I think, of mapping out what are the highest value activities that we do in healthcare to look after people, both to address their acute medical problems, um, perhaps also to reduce unnecessary admissions or consultations when people are very busy with COVID. And in the longer term, what aspects of more routine care Um, chronic disease management or screening are most important and valuable to our healthcare systems. I was really interested to see a paper which is perhaps the beginning of this story which was um, posted on CEBM, Carl, so you may have seen it. So I guess we call it a kind of preprint article. It was authored by Charitini Stavropoulou at uh, the University of London working with international colleagues and it was looking at common conditions linked to preventable admission to hospital and found that influenza, COPD, heart failure, diabetes, urine infections and cellulitis were some of the top reasons for admission where um, there seemed to be scope to reduce admissions from those situations from primary care. But major anticlimax, they're not sure what these are. (laughs) So I'd be interested to know, Carl, your thoughts on where do you think this evidence about what we should stop or start doing is going to come from? Well, first off is to say that list sort of fits with, we did a systematic overview looking at treatment where there's evidence to show they actually reduce hospital admissions. 
And so we looked at all the systematic reviews and it's really important and it's interesting. There are lots of treatments that reduce surrogate measures, but actually hard endpoints, there are actually less treatments. And the conditions we found them in were heart failure, coronary disease, asthma, COPD, and actually schizophrenia, mental health conditions. So that fits with that common list, if you like. And then a list of treatments that have actually been shown to reduce admission is far less than you consider. So there's that list. The second issue is I think we need to then go back to NICE now and start stripping out of the NICE guidelines, which actually activities have been shown to actually facilitate reductions in admission and hard endpoints. Because remember that there's a lot of activity we do, particularly in, in primary care, that actually is low value. And I think this is an opportunity to separate out these two issues right now. And I'm going to hark back, because listeners to this programme will remember, I talked about health screening. There's no evidence it reduces admissions or mortality in largely well people. This is the time to get our act together and separate out these two issues. So I, you know, I didn't mention health checks yeah. because I was I was betting in my head whether you would whether you would have to bring them up. I possibly for the uh, third you would time. Not get yeah, yeah. for that. You've got to keep saying it again and again, and then okay. it'll get through. But this is the time to take the evidence and get nice to separate out what makes a difference. And then there's going to be a catch-up phase, isn't there? Mm. So there we go. We're sort of shoehorning a stop into this. Or a start, as always, you can look at it either way. Uh, start taking the time to, to really look at, at what we do. Helen, uh, before we started this, we were having a chat and you've been looking at something that's interesting. It's a little signal that's uh, come out about coagulopathies and, and thrombus and COVID. Can yes. you tell us about that? I will. This came as a request, actually. Some people were asking about um, thrombosis and coagulopathy and COVID. And I think increasingly we're understanding that this virus gets around your body and does um, all kinds of things which we don't completely understand. But anecdotally, we've heard people say that they're seeing um, more PE and more so perhaps in COVID patients, or they don't have any good evidence on, on those reports. And there was a new paper out in JAMA a few days ago, which asked what the characteristics, clinical presentation and outcomes of patients hospitalised with coronavirus disease in the US were. They looked at 5,700 consecutive patients hospitalised with swab confirmed COVID-19 in the New York City area. And for around 3,000 of those patients who remained hospitalised when um, the study closed, they were missing outcomes for about half of those people and more so in older people. They found that around a quarter of them had troponin levels that were above normal, that, that they had elevated D-dimer levels, about double the upper limit of normal. Um, and some of them had other, other signs which might be consistent with um, conditions such as PE, but might also be consistent with acute respiratory um, disease. So quite a lot of them had tachycardia, um, approaching a half and a lot of them had low oxygen saturations around one in five had oxygen saturations of less than 90 percent it's a little bit difficult to put this in perspective because I'm not sure how that kind of um, picture differs from what you would expect with either people who are severely ill in hospital or specifically 
for people with acute respiratory distress syndrome um, for some other reason. But based on data like this, um, some French guidance came out um, as they were in, in their peak, suggesting that COVID patients are divided into high, medium and lower risk of having um, thrombotic disease, partly based on um, normal risk factors, um, but also looking at certain features of their of their COVID disease as well. And then moving on to suggest that perhaps some of those might receive prophylactic low molecular weight heparin, some of them might receive higher doses or even treatment doses. And to me, that was quite puzzling to, to understand um, whether that was a reasonable response or not. Um, and I certainly seen a debate on Twitter around whether in light of that uncertainty, you act and do something, I guess is one perspective, or whether you stand back. And as as Carl and several other of the guests that we've had on here over recent times have advocated, here is an uncertainty. And this is a starting point for us to try and explore this now using a trial to answer what is the role of low molecular weight heparin in COVID patients? Does it reduce their chance of having um, pulmonary embolus? And is that suitable for patients who are in hospital? Or should that be considered more broadly for people with milder disease who might be out in the community? Interestingly, it's worth noting in conditions like influenza, risk of deep vein thrombosis goes up. In fact, with all of the respiratory infections, you're more at risk of a stroke, you're more at risk of a DVT. So the first thing is to say, actually, you're likely to be more at risk with COVID of thrombosis, consistent with other conditions. So once you understand that, the question is, are you more likely, and is that one of the severe causes, the serious causes of death that actually could prevent? That's a really interesting question. This is one of the important trials that I would be looking at in hospitalised severe patients. And interestingly, with a colleague of mine, Tom Jefferson, we posted a uh, systematic review that had been withdrawn 20 years ago on treatments for the common cold, which, as everybody will know, one of the causes of the common cold is coronavirus. And actually, going back 30 or 40 years ago, one of the interesting treatments people were looking at was dipyridamol. And that actually has an effect, it has an effect on platelets and we use it in people with stroke. So I think there's a real mechanism argument for looking at treatments that actually may affect your circulatory system and actually putting them in trials. Great. And uh, this will be many more avenues for even more uh, COVID chats in the future, I'm sure. Well, Helen, thank you for, for bringing it up. It's it's definitely interesting. And uh, as Helen said, that came from some listeners. So if you are interested in knowing some more about that or um, have any points to make or about anything else, then do go to bmj.com slash podcast and you can find out how to get in touch with us. So, uh, Helen, I think this is going to end up in a rant with Carl. So let's come to you for a start. Um, yet again, you've been looking at testing. Uh, I have. You just can't stop, can you? I have. It's become a little bit of an obsession of mine, actually. Uh, we've talked about it before. I think there's still huge interest in diagnostic tests, um, both concerns from clinicians about the poor availability of PCR testing and speculation and hope building around the emerging idea of COVID passports um, that might help you get back to work um, 
antibody testing and still this need to understand population estimates of how many people have been infected. And a couple of papers recently, uh, since we last talked a bit about this, have caught my eye. One was an article in Annals of Internal Medicine giving an overview of diagnostic tests for SARS-CoV-2. And the thing that really appealed to me about this paper is they had a nice little summary grid in there and across the top they highlight four cases for testing. Asymptomatic people, so sort of I feel fine but have I got it. Symptomatic people, I feel ill and have I got it. So sort of scenarios where you might want to rule in or rule out active disease. Convalescence, are you still infectious? And large population, how many people have had it? I think there's another scenario which is increasingly of interest to um, people in countries like ours where we haven't had much PCR testing, which is have I had it in the past and can I go back to work now or see somebody who's vulnerable? And down the other side of this grid, they've got the different types of testing. So PCR, point of care, antibody tests. So for in each scenario, you can then go to the cell and find out for that type of test, for that type of clinical situation, what do we know at the moment? And I think the overarching message from that table to me seems to be that aside from testing of symptomatic people with PCR, we're pretty uncertain about most things. Then almost as we were on air last week, a second interesting paper caught my eye on a preprint server. It was also a paper from Oxford looking at nine antibody tests and comparing their performance. And I'd seen less around, particularly sort of aggregated data on lots of different antibody tests. And it made me quite excited to see what these might show. And Carl kindly agreed to look at test number one to nine, which were looked at by this group and give us some information on whether these antibody tests would give us hope. Will you tell us, Carl? Oh, okay. You've put me on the spot, haven't you? So there are these tests, aren't they? They're called lateral flow immunoassay tests. What's good about them is they're easy to use and they're quick. And just to say this is a conflict of mine because this work was done in Oxford where I'm based, but I have had nothing to do with it whatsoever. So they looked at a number of different tests and tested them for SARS-CoV-2, IgM and IgG. And I think they had about eight tests in total. And then they looked at them in a small, compared them to the gold standard. And what they came out with were the results. And they have two results. One was the sensitivity of LFIA devices. That's what they're short for. Ranged from 55 to 70%. And the specificity was 95 to 100% depending on the test. So So what's that good for then? Okay, look, let's try and work this out. So let's take the best case scenario. We assume the sensitivity is 70% and the specificity is 98%. Okay, now we're starting to use words and I'll try and talk you through them because everybody's totally forgot what they mean. And that's one of the problems in this language school. It's like, oh, what do they mean? But let's take first a population with a 5% serial prevalence. We assume in, we go to London and we assume 5% of the population has been infected. So we take a thousand people. Out of a thousand people, 50 people will have the disease. Yeah, happy with that? 950, I'm happy with that. 950 will not. So the mm-hmm. sensitivity is 70%. So sensitivity means the, of the people with the disease, 70% will test positive. So of the 50 people with the disease, 
35 will test positive and have the disease and 15 will test positive and not have the disease. Okay, so that's your first problem of the 50, mm -hmm. yeah. Then you've got your other group. Remember, you've then got 950 people who do not have the disease, yeah? Mm -hmm. And what we said is the specificity is 98%, okay? And specificity means the proportion of people without the disease who test negative. But what I'm interested in is the proportion of people without the disease who test positive, and that's 2%, okay? Why are you interested in that, Carl? Because we're interested really here in the false positives. Those who think they've got an antibody, but actually they haven't, and they're going around saying, I've got antibodies, but you haven't. So of the 950 people without the disease, yeah, 2% of them will test positive, okay? So 19 people will be false positives in every thousand you test. When you're at low prevalences, you need tests that are up in the 99% sensitivity and 99% specificity. In fact, in this case, if you want to be certain, you need to have perfect sensitivity and specificity. That's very difficult to get. So do you have a sense, Carl, of whether those antibody tests, and I suppose you're taking the performance characteristics you took there of 70 and 98%, was that from one particular test or was that from a, a range across all of the different tests? So we don't actually have that specific test right now, is that? That's the best case scenario of all the tests in effect. In okay. It. And that's what you try and do here. And you say, in the best case scenario, do you have still problems? And you can see you're going to have a significant number of people who are in the false positive and the false negative group. And in fact, they cancel each other out. And so, in and that to what extent do you think that matters? Well, it doesn't matter if you're using it for random sampling. If you want to work, that's what I was yeah, trying to if get. If you work to. in a research study and you want to work out how many people you think you've got the disease, you can factor in that effect. But if you want to give people advice and say, "Oh, by the way, you've got antibodies and you're definitely protected," you have a problem with that result because actually 30% of the time you're not going to be protected. Um, there's another puzzling thing about this paper, which is that these tests are numbered one to nine. And that was hard to get my head around. And so I called on additional help. I called John Deeks, who is a professor of biostatistics at the University of Birmingham and happens to be the BMJ's chief statistical advisor because I'd noticed him getting a bit riled up on Twitter about these tests one to nine and it turned out he was the perfect person to ask about this problem. I wish we'd gone to him weeks ago as well because John is in the middle of doing multiple systematic reviews for Cochrane with a huge international team of people on lots of aspects of testing on PCR tests, on antibody tests, on point of care tests, but also on signs and symptoms and imaging. And I asked him just to give us a sense of what the field of diagnostics on COVID-19 is doing and what he thought of this Oxford study. We're seeing large numbers of studies being published. So each week we're updating our, our review searches. And um, last week we had a three and a half thousand new studies on COVID we had to screen to look for uh, diagnostic test studies. And we found, uh, I think, 16 new studies of serology tests in a week. So the literature is changing very fast. The original studies we saw tend to be opportunistic studies, mainly from China, um, from the Wuhan area, which have... So it's good to see that data, but it's, it's a little un, 
clear as what uh, its meaning is and uh, it's not the certain sort of study designs you'll be very um, used to looking at a lot of the time. So a that problem a that a I have found looking at some of this research is there just seems to be tens if not hundreds of different tests available. How do we begin to work out what of this vast, vast offering um, works? That's absolutely true. And, and um, there's an organization called FIND in Geneva who have got the best list of tests that we know of. And as of today, it's got 296 different serology tests listed on it, which is far more than the number of papers we've seen. So uh, trying to map out what tests are being used, what tests exist, whether the tests actually are coming from the same manufacturer, but are just uh, being sold with different names in different countries. Um, it's, uh, we wish we had Sherlock Holmes working for us, to be honest. It's a real mystery as to how this is being done. And, um, Tell us why it's so mysterious. It feels like, it sounds like a bit of a Wild West you're describing. The regulation of tests is very different from the regulation of drugs. Um, for obtaining market approval for the European Union, you have to have a CE mark. And to get a CE mark for a, a COVID biomarker test, you do that by a process of um, notification rather than any assessment. You you're, uh, have to lodge a um, request for uh, a CE mark through an organization in the, uh, in the EU and you more or less automatically get the CE mark. So uh, you can't uh, think that these tests have gone through scrutiny. Uh, there's also and no we don't central. Know how good they are? They're, they're not obliged in any way to tell us how. They're not allowed to market with claims that they do something they don't do. But there's nobody who checks that. And indeed, there have been certain uh, tests uh, which have been found to be totally fraudulent, uh, which have been marketed. But there's also no central list of tests which have been awarded CE marks. That we can't find one list. You have to go through the different, many different organizations uh, to actually ask them what's happened. And that's not an achievable thing. It seems absolutely ridiculous that there is no central list whereby you can, as a, as a hospital or a user, can go and look up to see whether this CE mark is a true mark or a false mark. The FDA has changed mm. as well. They started in the, in the pandemic by assessing all the tests, but they quickly realized they hadn't got the capacity to do that. And now they just list serology tests and they require serology tests to carry some warning, which says they haven't been evaluated by the FDA, but they can go to market in the US uh, with that warning on without any scrutiny at all. So it has become a wild west of testing. There is no doubt that um, the biomarker companies are not being scrutinized for the evidence that they are providing that these tests actually uh, perform as they say they will. I spotted this paper um, from an Oxford group last week who had looked at a number of people who had COVID disease and were performing a whole different panel of diagnostic tests on them to see how good they were. And I noticed, John, that you piped up on Twitter to say that you were not particularly satisfied with this paper. Can you tell us about some of these problems that you're seeing? Well, in that paper, the tests are called test one to test nine because the government had contracts with the testing companies, which included a confidentiality clause that they would not be named in the report. Now, that seems close to immorally wrong to me that the world now cannot tell what tests there were in that study. It was a well done study. It was paid for out of UK taxpayers money. The only people who know what tests were in that study uh, are the people in the UK government and probably the researchers. 
and they're bound by confidentiality not to let the rest of the world know what tests were actually evaluated. So for our review, which we'll be uh, publishing soon, we're not going to be including that study because we can't say what tests there were. In fact, we have no UK data in our review at all, um, which is not a good position for us to be in. We need to know what these tests are. I, I, frankly, I, I, I cannot believe that um, we would think that this is a reasonable way to behave, to let the, te the test companies make the decision about whether information is published or not. We all know about publication bias. We all know about conflicts of interest. The biomarker companies are the only part of the industry making money at the moment in this pandemic. There's a lot of money to be made. We should not put them in a position where they have, they're in charge of letting us know or not know the results of their studies. It should all be out there for us to understand and see how well things work. How do you think we go about achieving that? What needs to be done? So often in the history of medicine, when things have gone wrong, when we've actually harmed people, we, we actually reflect on our regulation and see it's lacking. I'm sure that we're at that point now with biomarker tests. Uh, tell us something that gives you hope. Well, I think there's so much research going on in getting good tests here, that there are teams all around the world doing a lot of work to get the tests sorted and to understand what's happening. I mean, the, good testing for infectious diseases often takes decades. We haven't um, got good influenza tests until recent years, for example. So the speed with which industry is focusing on this problem is, is really good. And hopefully we'll get some um, good tests come through from that. So I think there's a lot of hope that we'll actually make a big difference soon and, and things are moving fast uh, in this field. It's, um, important that we keep on top of it. It's important that we keep um, to the truth to make sure that the biomarker companies and the evidence is available to us. Um, and hopefully we can use this whole um, uh, experience to, to make long-term benefits to the way in which we um, run the biomarker testing industry and regulation for years to come. And just to say, uh, the BMJ's news team confirmed that with the Department of Health that the names of the tests were withheld due to commercial confidentiality. You can find a link to that story along with other links to everything else we've talked about in this episode. Um, Helen. Before Carl rants, I've got one thing to say. <laughs> um, so I was really glad to John for taking the time out to talk to me and I think we should come back to him as new evidence emerges on these diagnostic tests but equally so sad to hear that COVID is demonstrating um, why our international system is just not proving adequate without this central register without an obligation of manufacturers to show that their test actually works in this kind of culture of lack of transparency and Carl's been so quiet I think he must be gathering his breath or um, just, just just wondering just what he can possibly add to what John has just said. Well, look, I've known John for a long time and uh, it was as close as I've ever seen him to being angry, actually, in a conversation because what he's just described there is utterly outrageous. And uh, I'm picking my words carefully here because I'm sort of thieving at the edges here. I thought they were numbered on the basis it was a sort of blinding issue, which makes complete sense. But the idea we're signing up to studies and producing evidence on pieces of kit that you can't actually name the kit and what it is, is just not on. And what it shows is a complete loophole in the device industry, in the approval of devices, 
and the complete mess that is diagnostics, but also medical devices across the board. Yes, there is no central database for devices and technologies. There's supposed to be one called Udemed, and believe it or not, it's supposed to be fully functioning next month in May. And about and I, somebody will correct me here. It's supposed to be fully functioning on the twenty first, twenty second of May. But in the new regulations, it says if it's not fully functioning by that date, he can revert back to the old regulations and push it back. Therefore, there is no single database of devices that's going to appear anytime soon. And if this, if this wasn't so serious, it would be a joke. But it is really serious. And I think we need a rewriting of the whole script here because you cannot have a situation where you try all technologies, drugs, and you keep what it is hidden because what happens if that's shown to be harmful and we know that and next week it's being used in Spain on patients. That's just unacceptable. You've got to move us on, Duncan. <laughs> Get him out of this hole. It's just going to keep going more. I've got to more, raise my spirits. Come on, I'm losing it in a big way when I hear. This is, oh, you could buy number four test. Which one was that? Oh, my gosh. How do we know even in, in the real world whether number four is different from number five and they've got the numbers the right way round? Who, who knows? So I, I suppose I'm going to move us on, but not totally on, because um, last week uh, in a discussion about the, the UK response, Carl, you said something that has stuck with me, which is that there's a difference between evidence and the science, and that uh, when the government says they're sticking by the science, that doesn't actually mean that they're doing the, the, the best thing. Science is about debate, not about, about certainty. Helen, you wanted to talk about this. So, so what's going on there? Yes, as you said, Carl mentioned this um, differentiation of evidence and science last week. And that um, that had been going around in my mind. And when I saw these two stories emerging this week, they they sort of brought about interesting thoughts. So the first the first thing that happened was that there was news about the Scientific Advisory Committee in the UK and particularly criticism that the committee lacked diversity and therefore perhaps the advice and debate and discussion around that evidence could be narrow. And secondly, we've seen scientists being attacked on social media for expressing opinions or discussing science and evidence, perhaps where their opinions differ or their take differs from the mainstream. And the implicit criticism there appears to be that we want sort of everyone to agree. So on one hand, we're criticising a lack of diversity in opinion. And at the same time, we're saying um, we've got too much of it. And it's probably not the case that it's the same people um, arguing about those things. But the contrast is nonetheless quite interesting. Um, So to say a bit more about the specifics, this UK SAGE group, who presumably translate and discuss the evidence with the UK government, seem pretty important given the party line that they rely on the science heavily. Um, But we didn't know, curiously, who they were. And the Guardian newspaper in the UK got to the bottom of this this week. And there was a linked opinion piece by Anthony Costello. And he's a professor of global health and sustainable development. And he said... Success of any advisory group of scientists surely depends on a culture of openness, independence and diversity of opinion. 
And the government to date has not been open about who's been on this committee, or at least it didn't seem to be until it got put under pressure. The group of people does not seem particularly independent because around half of the people on it are paid government employees. So may not feel that they can give independent advice or speak completely freely. And they're not as diverse as you might expect. So their opinions might be a bit shallow. So, for example, um, Costello explained that seven of the people on there are clinical academics. There are three microbiologists, seven modelers, two behavioral scientists um, with backgrounds in disaster and terrorism, one geneticist and a civil servant. Very few women and only one person from a minority background. So last week we heard from Julian Sheather that ethicists might have an important role to play in the crisis and in an editorial in the BMJ earlier this month Devi Sridhar and Maimuna Majumda advocate for the use of other perspectives um, aside from modelling um, so does the inclusion of those seven modellers skew things too much they suggested more attention to case study analysis from other countries information from frontline health staff and patient groups and policy documents and historical analyses of previous outbreaks So in Germany, for example, their authorities considered model predictions, but they also used South Korea's strategy of testing, tracing and isolation. And on that group, you can see there was little representation from jobbing healthcare professionals, including allied healthcare workers or any input from primary care. So I thought that was quite, quite interesting. Yeah, Law, the first thing is to say... um... Anybody who got asked to go on an advisory committee at the government level would probably stick their hand up and go, yes, I'm going to go on it. So that's the first aspect. This is not about putting blame on the people on the committee, but it's actually trying to understand a structure of what advice do you want to help you make the best decisions. So to me, it looked like what should have happened is there should have been modelers and people who derived the evidence who feed that into a committee. But actually, there's a wider perspective of what you want, which you allied out there, is you want evidence about the wider perspective of healthcare. Where do we think the hotspots are? Where are the problems going to be? And it's, it's no good just saying, well, we mentioned nursing homes two months ago. Somebody's got to be there and understand the issues be able to put forward what the problems are, what the evidence is, and what it looks like on the ground. And if you had a wider spectrum of evidence feeding into a group who were more representative, I agree, of the wider spectrum of healthcare, you would have probably made some different decisions. So I would like to see much more people who transition both of the areas of healthcare and the science, bringing that together, and taking that information into the decisions. A lot there to talk about. And someone who's written about that um, for Stat, Helen, is Vinay Prasad. Yes, uh, over in the US, away from the UK, uh, Vinay Prasad, who's usually uh, known for talking about oncology topics, had um, come to the defence of scientists using the example of John Ioannidis, who we interviewed a few weeks back for the show. Um, And I call Vinay to hear more about his concerns of how discussion around evidence and science was playing out on social media. Many people participating in the debate uh, discussion are doing so in good faith, doing their very best to make sense of a complex, shifting, constantly evolving, you know, information stream. I think in the U.S. we have one added complexity, which is there is a bit of a political angle to this that has been developing. And I think it's important for those of us in the academy Um, medical doctors, public health experts, epidemiologists, economists, 
to sort of step away from this and not to make this a political issue. Um, unfortunately, we do see sort of some equating in the political spectrum to sort of points of view. In the United States, perhaps on the far right, there might be less of an interest in doing basic things like social distancing and sort of these protective public health measures on the left. Um, it might be a little bit different. And so I think we, we really struggle with trying to have an academic discussion outside of the political sphere. And I think it's super important for us to do that um, because I think it's super important to be able to talk about these things purely from the point of view of medical experts who care about minimizing the loss of life and, and morbidizing the harms to people, which is really kind of what, what we all are trying to do. One of the sort of concerning things that I see, um, perhaps because of the large audience, is the fact that there are some comments that strike me as sort of inappropriate, more attacking a person um, rather than attacking the ideas. I think sometimes if somebody portrays a point of view that's considered, you know, incorrect, uh, they're quickly labeled as, you know, having blood on their hands or wanting loss of life, which I think is just clearly not true. People want to minimize the damage of COVID, but they may disagree about legitimately about what it means to do that. And I do think that's part of the reason I got interested in this is that I'm, I'm worried that there are going to be people who are legitimate academic experts who get this issue from a different angle. Maybe they think about it more from the economic angle. Maybe they think about it in terms of the long-term harms that happen when global economies are disrupted, and that such voices might be afraid or reluctant to give their point of view because they fear, to some degree, the social media mob, or they fear uh, the fact that they could easily be portrayed as a political actor when they are, in fact, not a political participant. We always struggle with trying to criticize a study but not criticize the person. I think that's just a perpetual struggle in academia. I think now is a time that we have to be extra cautious to make sure we're criticizing studies and not criticizing people. I think the other thing we can do as individuals is if somebody has made a critical point about a study once, somebody else makes it twice, you don't need to be the third person or the 23rd person to make the point. I think there is a sort of ganging up mentality that kind of is emerging. And we can kind of resist that as academics by, you know, if you have a point that's not been made, make that point. But there's no reason to kind of beat someone over the head with a point a thousand times, uh, which is some of what I saw about some studies that I think kind of drew uh, a lot of ire. I think it's important to separate, you know, studies can have methodologic flaws, but it's always important to go the extra mile and try to argue whether or not the conclusion is right, wrong, and if it's wrong, what is the right answer? What is the answer to the question? And that, I think, help, can help push us in this discussion. But, you know, when you face something where there is a lot of uncertainty, um, I think you have to give yourself extra space to allow people to be comfortable being wrong. Um, I think, you know, a lot of what we're facing now are questions we've never faced before. You know, sometimes people say, well, the evidence is clear. Well, sometimes I want to say that you actually there's no real evidence that is exactly pertinent to this situation. We're all extrapolating based on evidence that kind of fits but doesn't perfectly fit the situation. And in such a situation, you should give tolerance to the fact that others may view the evidence differently. And it might not be as clear as it is in your mind. That was Vinny Prasad, Associate Professor of Medicine at Oregon Health and Science University. So, Carl, if you were asked, would you uh, go and join one of these advisory boards talking to the government about such an important thing right now? 
Yes, I would do. And I think it's important if you were to do that, that I think you have to be able to reflect where your expertise and skills are. And um, I've been asked on many boards. And I think also what's important is you've got to know when you're outside of your limits of your advice. But I think the most important aspect is when you're giving advice is you've got to be clear about the uncertainties. It's never about being right or wrong. It's about reflecting where the evidence is for me and also allowing people to make the decisions based on you communicating that evidence in an informed way. My job's never been to convince people to do something one way or the other. It's just to try and say, here's how we inform this decision. And I think that's what really is important, which we're missing. We get government statements that come out and go, this is what we're doing. And we go, well, what's that based on? And we get this term, which is, it's based on the best science. And I'm like, okay, can I see that, please? And I'm going to give a, a real thing that does concern me, is one of the things about science is, it, science is often wrong. It's often about discourse. It's about discovering issues as opposed to the evidence, which is about the facts, what's actually happening. And I'd love for people to come out and say, we are looking at the evidence, let's be clear about what's happening right now. And that's one of the things we try really hard to do and communicate that. And that comes on the back of this issue which Vin is pointing out, which I love his stuff. He's one of the people to follow on Twitter is definitely Vinny Prasad. He's saying, when you come out and reflect on certainties, or you go against a status quo, people should ref reflect that, and, and particularly understand when there's disagreements, it's probably reflecting, there are uncertainties, and it's not clear what to do. And once you understand that basis, you can reel back from your own opinions and go, ah, we've actually got some issues here we need to resolve. Now, should we do it with opinion? Or should we do it with evidence? Well, I think that is a nice point to round out this episode of Talk Evidence on. Uh, Helen, Carl, thanks very much for joining us again this week. Um, as we've said throughout this, we want to know what you think about the evidence. Uh, is there anything else that you want us to talk about? Um, do you agree with Carl's rants? or not uh go to bmj.com slash podcast where you can find out how to get in touch and uh, we can feed that into the show so coming up in the future as we said we want to talk um to someone perhaps harlan Crumholtz, about the natural history uh of of this we're interested in um the who and uh, how they're pulling together guidelines in a world with such disparate access to resources that mean that uh, localizing information is incredibly important so if you haven't done so have a look at us on apple podcasts or spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from and there you can subscribe so you don't miss out on any of that so uh until next week it's goodbye from me goodbye from me and goodbye from me take care